Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Delicious Legacy Podcast. With me, Thomas Dinas. Join me for another adventure in food through time and space, where the ancient recipes take life into our modern digital world. Globalization is a term used to describe how trade and technology have made the world into a more connected and interdependent place. Globalization also captures in its scope the economic and social changes that come about as a result. We can imagine it as thousands of threads of an immense spider web formed slowly over millennia, and this number of threads increasing and get more complex over time. People, money, material goods, ideas, and of course diseases and devastation have traveled those silken strands and have done so in greater numbers and with greater speed than ever in the present age. And the last sentence is the key. Of course, globalization is much more accelerated today, or at least after World War II in the West, and certainly since the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s. But it happened always, and there was always an element of globalization across the world. Civilizations and cultures and people always connected. We can think of the Silk Road, the ancient network of trade routes through China, Central Asia and the Mediterranean, which was used at least since uh, 50 BCE as the most well-known and early example of exchanging ideas, products and customs. In a general sense, the increasing worldwide integration of economic, cultural, political, religious and social systems can be defined as globalization. And economic globalization is the process by which the whole world becomes a single market. This means that goods and services, capital and labor are traded on a worldwide basis and information and the results of research flow readily between countries. This is of course a very modern definition of uh, globalization and applies to us very much. But on today's episode, the spices that we're going to explore, we can definitely say that they have played a significant role over the past millennia to shape this globalized society that we know of and uh, we rely for our goods. It can be argued also that um, spices such as clove and nutmeg coming from all the way far on the far east of Indonesia through Asia and India to Europe for a thousand years, and um, also vanilla from the other side of the world, from Mexico, the last four or five hundred years, played not just a significant role in this development, but they shaped the globalized economy that we live in today. Their story today, it's more fascinating than you can ever imagine. On episodes before, I talked about the history of spice trade, especially through the Arab Peninsula, 
and the impact the different Arabian tribes and merchants had into the import of spices, of exotic spices from the East to the Mediterranean world and Europe in general, and how thus that um, um, carved um, an intriguing and unique lust for more spices and more trade um, that culminated into the age of exploration and uh, the Europeans going to the Americas and uh, a global trading network that encompassed uh, the whole planet, essentially, and the race, of course, to get all these um, rare, expensive spices. So people would uh, risk their lives and travel for three years uh, from Europe, from North Europe especially, and go all the way to the Far East, Indonesia and so on, to get their hands into some spices. So let's find out more about the adventures and how this hunt for some ingredients shaped um, our modern history and geography. Once these were superbly expensive ingredients, and I'm talking about cloves and nutmeg, rare, medicinal, and worth their weight more than gold. The third one I'm exploring, vanilla, still is one of the most expensive ones fragrant and addictive with its own unique history. I want you to go to your Google map and type Banda Islands B-A-N-D-A and press enter and see where it takes you. It will zoom in into a cluster of small islands about seven of them where all around them you have the blue of the sea. If you zoom out a little bit and then zoom out again you see them a cluster of isolated islands in the middle of Indonesia. This was the only place where nutmeg was grown up until 300 years ago, more or less. For centuries, even for thousand years, it was secret. The Europeans didn't know the exact location of those islands. Arab traders were bringing them from India. They were in touch with Indonesian traders from all over the place. And then from one to the other, this knowledge was kept secret, with many myths arising, of course, and many different um, stories about sea monsters guarding them and so on, so it would keep the price of them high. Zanzibar farmers harvest karafu in September, October and November by gently picking the buds, which grow in clusters of 10 to 15 on trees that can reach as high as 15 meters tall, requiring nimble climbing. Harvesters then spread the buds on mats to dry in the sun. As they dry, they release their redolence to the sea-bound breezes. They also lose about two-thirds of their weight, and the kilogram may contain up to 10,000 buds. When dried, the top part, where the bud is, has small spikes, a bit like the clasps of an engagement ring. When they're fully dry, you can feel the sharpness of the spikes when held firmly in your hand. But Zanzibar is not where the cloves originated. The 6th century C Arab poet Imru al Quais quoted saying that the cloves sweet smell coming on an east wind. For indeed, it was then that cloves grew exclusively on islands 10,000 kilometers 
due east of the Arabian Peninsula. But the cultivation of cloves in Zanzibar is pretty modern then. Back then, and long before that, in the age of Roman and ancient Greeks, cloves was a spice that defined the spice islands of Ternate and Tidore in the eastern Indonesia. It was the only locale where cloves grew, and the Europeans, Romans and Greeks alike, obviously didn't know where they're coming from. This spice was um, exchanged via Indian merchants in the Indian subcontinent, and the origins of it was a clove's secret. So cloves is the immature sun-dried bud of a small tree, and it had reached the Mediterranean world by the first century AD. It was an exotic spice. It was a rarity in classical and medieval Europe as well. It was only used mainly as a medicine. It was a costly one. Cloves is cariophyllum in Latin or cariophyllum in Greek. The first mention of clove is in the Chinese literature of the Han period, around the 3rd century BCE. The spice called Hisohyang, bird's tongue, was first used as a breath freshener. Officers of the court were required to place cloves in their mouth before discussions with the sovereign. Cloves were used much more widely in medicines than uh, for food preparation. They were considered an internal warming herb, which helped dispel cold and warm the body. They were used as tonics and stimulants and were prescribed as a digestive aid and antiseptic. Cloves were used to treat a wide range of ailments, including intestinal distress, impotence, diarrhea, vomiting and cholera. They were made into poultice to treat cracked nipples, scorpion stings, toothaches and pretty much any abscess that caused pain. Cloves also played an important role in the ancient Indian societies, although they arrived there several centuries later than in China. Cloves became popular in traditional Ayurvedic medicine and were used to treat a wide range of problems including colds, asthma, indigestion, vomiting, toothache, laryngitis, low blood pressure and impotence. In the ancient Sanskrit text Saraka Samhita, around the 1st century CE, it is stated that one who wants clear, fresh, fragrant breath must keep nutmegs and cloves in the mouth. The Roman writer Pliny the Elder, our friend, was the first to describe cloves in the West in his natural history, where he recorded that there is also in India a grain resembling that of pepper, but larger and more fragile, called cariophyllum, which is reported to grow on the Indian lotus tree. It is imported here for the sake of its scent. Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, roughly 300 years after Pliny, is said to have presented Saint Sylvester, the Bishop of Rome, with gold and silver vessels filled with incense and spices, including 150 pounds of cloves. The Greek physician Paul of Aegina wrote in the 5th century CE, It is the nature of some flower, of some tree, woody, black, almost thick as a finger reputed aromatic, sour, bitterish, hot and dry in the third degree, excellent in relishes and other prescription. In the 6th century C, in the 12 books of, on medicine, the eminent Byzantine physician Alexander of Tralis recommended cloves for seasickness, gout and appetite stimulation. Anthemus, another physician which we have some, uh, uh, which we have seen before in our medieval, early medieval and Byzantine series of podcasts, who also has some recipes about food, has a recipe with hairs, he tells us that if they are quite young, can be taken with sweet sauce including pepper, a little cloves and ginger, seasoned with uh, spikenard or tejap leaf. Hare is an excellent food, good in cases of dysentery, and its bile can be taken mixed with pepper for earache. As we will see later, the Arabs were the first to use cloves and nutmeg extensively in food preparation. 
Nutmeg and mace come from a tree, Myristica fragrance, native to the Banda Islands. They didn't arrive into the Mediterranean until the 8th century AD, so far later than clove, and far, far later than other ancient ones like black pepper and long pepper. However, nutmeg and mace are frequently mentioned in the oldest scriptures of Hinduism in India, the Vedas, composed between 1500 and 1000 BCE. Nutmeg was recommended for improved digestion and was prescribed for headache, neural problems, fevers from colds, bad breath and digestive problems. Later Indian texts describe nutmeg as an important medicine for cardiac complaints, consumption, asthma, toothaches, dysentery, flatulence and rheumatism. On the other hand, nutmeg and mace's arrival in China was much later than in India, so the first reference we have doesn't appear until the 3rd century CE in Zihan's Nanfang Kaomu Zhuang, the record of southern plants and trees. In it, he mentions a fragrant spice that comes from a tree whose flowers are colored like a lotus. And nutmeg itself is not commonly mentioned in the Chinese literature until the 8th century, when it was used to treat diarrhea, dysentery, abdominal pain and bloating, reduced appetite and indigestion. Nutmeg and mace were largely unknown to the West until the 5th or 6th century CE. Pliny was the first to write about a tree called Comacum, which had a fragrant nut, but this is not certain if it was referring to the nutmeg. The 1st century CE Greek physician Dioscorides also vaguely refers to a red bark of an unknown origin called Masir. The first clear reference to nutmeg and mace are not found until the Byzantine medical text of the 6th century, which referred to a red bark called Masis, mace, and the musky nut Nux muscata, nutmeg. However, these don't come to much more popular use with the study of medicine by the Arabs, by the Islamic scholars. So later on, in the 9th and 10th century AD, Harun al-Rashid of the Abbasid Caliphate and his son collected work of Greek medicine and other scientific texts throughout um, the world. They were taken to the Grand Library of Baghdad in the House of Wisdom, where the entire body of Greek medicinal texts, including all the works of Galen, Oribasius, Paul of Aegean, and Hippocrates and Dioscorides, were translated into Arabic. Uh, and based on their studies, uh, Muslim physicians believed that sickness was a result of body imbalances, as we've seen with ancient Greeks as well, and these imbalances could be restored if the diet consisted of the right balance of herbs and spices, included some nutmeg and clove, as we've seen. So these spices played a prominent role in the 9th century medical texts written by famous Arab physicians such as Isaac ibn Amran. His work, written in Arabic and translated into Hebrew, Latin and Spanish, became the foundation of medical curriculum of medieval Europe and thus entered the medieval European repertoire. But in fact, with the Arabs, which were the first to use spices greatly, in food and appreciate them in all the, the cuisine because of the fragrance and, and their medicinal properties. Uh, the Arabs were the first to use cloves and nutmeg. The Iraqi Ibn Sayyar al-Warag listed cloves repeatedly in, the, in his 10th century Kitab al-Tabik, the Book of Cookery, one of the earliest known Arabic cookbooks. In his highly regarded Al-Qanun Fi al-Tib, the canon of medicine, Ibn Sina recommended three-eighths of a drum of nutmeg with a small quantity of quince juice for the weakness of stomach. And he described nutmeg as a potent anesthetic concoction. Cloves and nutmeg played a dominant role in the popular 13th century Syrian cookbook, Kitab al Waslah Ilai Habib, and in the anonymous Andalusian cookbook that we've seen before in our podcast. It is generally considered that uh, before the 12th century, the medical practice in Europe was um, a lot more backwards um, and uh, 
it had a lot to be desired um, compared to the Muslim one. It is not until new translations of observations and methods of the Islamic world became more available in the Western medicine, which um, then began to move forward. Insights and methods from Islamic doctors brought many new advances to European medicine, including the widespread treatment of diseases with spices. So on that kind of uh, hazy landscape and um, writings between um, which kind of mingle food and recipes and cuisine with medicine and um, theology and so on, in between all that, we have the emergence of uh, the spices such as nutmeg and mace coming to the cabinet of uh, Europeans for food. And um, it seems like in the 716 AD, the Frankish king uh, Kilperic II is known to have granted the monks of Corby Mon- Monastery a tall exception on their annual spice allotment of 30 pounds pepper, 5 of cinnamon and 2 of cloves. There are records from the medieval monastery of St. Gall in Switzerland that monks used cloves to season their fasting feasts in the 9th century. In the 10th century, Andalusian traveller Ibrahim ibn Yaqub noted that the burghers of Mainz in Germany used cloves to season their food. When the king and queen of Scotland celebrated the Feast of Assumption in 1256, their food was spiced with 50 pounds each of ginger, pepper and cinnamon, 4 pounds of cloves and 2 pounds each of nutmeg and mace. At the marriage of Duke of Bavaria in 1476, the banquets required 205 pounds of cinnamon, 286 pounds of ginger and 85 pounds of nutmeg. Of course, in reality, Banda Islands, they weren't the sole source of nutmeg. As a wild tree, nutmeg grows everywhere in, um, from India to Papua and perhaps it has been cultivated in many different places and was used as a spice. This nutmeg, and perhaps something different from the nutmeg that we know today, it has been grown in other parts of the Moluccas Islands and the wider spice island region, you know, of uh, the Indonesia abundance uh, sit in the middle and east, kind of isolated from the rest. The Bandanese people were master navigators. They had knowledge of the paths of the sea and the seafaring. And of course, they knew how to trade all the luxury goods that it was going between Papua and China and further west to India. So there were lots of different luxury goods then, not only the spices, but also there was a trade for bird of paradise, plumes, for example. Of course, it seems that the Bandanese began to actively cultivate the nutmeg around 1000 AD or so, either because the product was the highest quality. The Bandanese nutmeg is the standard for flavor and uh, potency nowadays, or basically because they thought it was a clever economic idea. So these little islands, they became the key port for the nutmeg trade. And they were frequented by the Chinese, the Malay, and the Javanese. And of course, by the 15th century, by Arab and Persian merchants. It is noted that the Bandanese sent their own trade ships as far as afield as Malacca. And by the first decade of the 16th century, so around 1510, the Portuguese became the first Europeans to arrive in the region. Again, they tried to muscle their way into the trade system, and again, they didn't know exactly where nutmeg and mace were coming from. Basically, it was something of a mystery up until the late 16th century, and with the arrival of the Dutch in the region, 
because of these uh, distant supply lines, these complex supply lines that we've seen, the spices were obviously very costly in the early and high Middle Ages in Europe, in the Mediterranean and Europe. It was restricted, of course, to the more wealthy, so that added greatly to their desirability. As the 11th and 12th centuries progressed, there was a steady rise in the popularity of Asian spices, stimulated in part by the Crusades and those who returned uh, enchanted by the rich cuisine of uh, Constantinople. The Canic Venetian merchants saw a window of opportunity and began to supply the European market with much greater quantities of spice. By the end of the 12th century, medieval cooks dreamed up hundreds of different applications, leaving practically no types of food without spice. There were rich and spicy sauces for meat and fish, based on almost limitless number of combinations of cloves, nutmeg, cinnamon, mace, pepper and other spices, ground up and mixed in with a host of locally grown herbs and aromatics. So the popularity of spices in both cuisine and medicine reached uh, a sort of historical peak during the late Middle Ages in Europe. Food in medieval households was highly processed and richly spiced. Uncooked food was rarely eaten, even vegetables and fruit. The spices were used to season all types of food, including meat, fish, soups, sweet dishes and wine. It even became popular in medieval banquets to pass around a spice platter from which guests would choose extra seasonings for their already richly accented meals. Paul Friedman, an expert in medieval gastronomy, tells us that spices were omnipresent in medieval gastronomy and something of the order of 75% of medieval recipes involved spices. The star of our uh, today's show as such, nutmeg, did not start out as a culinary spice, and especially not, not something associated with uh, mulled wine and winter holidays. In the early Middle Ages, nutmeg was imbued with medicinal properties. Herbalist John Gerald wrote in 1597 that nutmeg is good against freckles in the face, quickens the sight, strengthens the belly and feeble liver, taketh away the swelling of the spleen, breaketh wind, and is good against all cold diseases of the body. It was also thought to possess mystical healing powers, and it can induce hallucinations. Dating back as far as the 12th century, nutmeg has been used in waves as a drug, and snorted, smoked, and eaten in large quantities to produce a hallucinogenic high. It has been likened to feeling like a two-day hangover and being encased in mud. Of course, nowadays we have many health warnings issued uh, against... (laughs) It's a use uh, as a as a drug. As we've seen, the Bandanese merchants, of course, they were traders long before they turned their eyes into nutmeg and mace and cloves, especially before these products became um, important to the outside world. Early on, there was a vigorous inter-island trade among the Spice Islands. This trade was centered on the sago palm, Metroxylon sagu, which uh, was the primary food source of the small volcanic Maluku and Banda Islands, where little else grew but coconut and spices. And nutmeg itself, the fruit, is eaten and still eaten by the locals. The Bandanese became uh, the undisputed leaders of that inter-island trade of sago and spices by traveling in their fleets of Kora Kora canoes propelled by rowers on platforms of bamboo last five feet away on either side of the canoe proper. The sago palm was the staple food for hundreds of thousands of people, but it received little attention uh, from the outside world until uh, the year 1869, when the great Victorian naturalist and Darwin's uh, contemporary Alfred Russell Wallace 
described these characteristics at length in his epic, The Malay Archipelago. And about its taste, Wallace wrote, The hot cakes are very nice with butter, and when made with the addition of a little sugar and grated cocoa nut are quite a delicacy. They are soft and something like cornflour cakes, but have a slight characteristic flavor, which is lost in the refined sago we use in this country. They were my daily substitute for bread with coffee. Within this heavy internal trading of spice for sago palm, the sauce of nutmeg and clove remained a mystery to the outside world. Like I said, for almost a thousand years, the Arabians and the Indians who sailed all across the Indian Ocean were mostly clueless about uh, this spice's origin. Around uh, the year 1000, the Arabic writer Ibrahim ibn Wasif Shah, in his summary of marvels, made this fanciful description about cloves and its source. Somewhere near India is the island carrying the valley of cloves. No merchants or sailors have ever been to the valley or have ever seen the kind of tree that produces cloves. Its fruit, they say, is sold by genies. The sailors arrive at the island, place their items of merchandise on the shore and return to their ships. Next morning, they find, beside each item, a quantity of cloves. One man claimed to have begun to explore the island. He saw people who were yellow in color, beardless, dressed like women with long hair, but they hid as he came near. After waiting a little, the merchants came back to the shore where they had left their merchandise, but this time they found no cloves and they realized that this had happened because of the man who had seen the islanders. After some years' absence, the merchants tried again and were able to revert back to the original system of trading. The cloves are said to be pleasant to the taste when they are fresh. The islanders feed on them, and they never fall ill or grow old. It is also said that they dress in the leaves of the tree that grows only on that island and is unknown to other people. This expansion of uh, nutmeg and clove trade into the rest of the world it was obviously dependent into other sailors apart from the Bandanese. The Malay and Indonesian sailors, and together with the Javanese, they've been the primary players. At the end of the second century, see, Three separate trading spheres were operating in the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea. The sailors from India and Sri Lanka travelling to and from Bali, Java and Sumatra across the Bay of Bengal. The Indonesian seafarers conducting trade within the centre of this vast archipelago itself. And the Indonesian that reached out to Southeast Asia and China. Trade outposts and emporiums arose in Java and Sumatra, where the Indian and later Arabian sailors could access all the spices and commodities of the Southeast Asia and distribute them across the Indian Ocean. The Indian and Arabian ships typically sailed only as far east as the Strait of Malacca, and Indonesian ships made the other two journeys to the eastern Indonesia and China. It was not until the high Middle Ages that Arabian and Indian sailors themselves sort of knew the true home of the spices, such as clove, nutmeg and maize. In the 14th century, half a kilogram of nutmeg cost as much as three sheep or a cow. In 1760, the price of nutmeg in London was 85 to 90 pounds to 90 shillings per pound, a price kept artificially high by the Dutch. One of the reasons nutmeg was so valuable and costly is because it took five years for the seed to grow. Today, the price for whole nuts can range from four to six dollars for two ounces, or $625 for 50 pounds. Nutmeg was highly coveted and revered by the wealthy and fashionable people, so much so that they carried around their own pocket-sized nutmeg graters to add a dash of the spice to anything at any time, which was usually punch, 
and other beverages. There is a fascinating book about the history of uh, nutmeg called Nathaniel's Nutmeg and basically tells us about this tiny island of Ran, which was um, in the Indonesian archipelago, just about two miles long and a half a mile wide. And um, basically it was the bone of contention between the English and the Dutch and um, Nathaniel Korthop and his small band of adventurers were sent to that island in October 1616 and for four years held off the massive Dutch navy. So basically the Nathaniel's nutmeg centers on this remarkable showdown between Korthope and the Dutch governor general and the brutal fate of the mariners racing to the island and the other corners of the globe to reap the huge profit of the spice trade. Uh, so yeah, if you're interested, um, read this book. It's fascinating. Nathaniel's nutmeg by the author Giles Milton. In the end, in 1677, the Dutch traded Manhattan to the British for the claim on just one of this island. And that because these islands, these little obscure islands, were part of the sole source of uh, nutmeg <laughs> all over the world. And um, it was a valuable commodity, one of the most valuable commodities in Western Europe. Um, obviously, thanks to its power to cure everything or anything from bubonic plague to gas. I'll be back after this short break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Of course, the story is a story of uh, resistance and the persistence of the Bandanese because they were the expert traders who cornered the nutmeg market and they had to endure a brutal and openly genocidal campaign against them by the Dutch for many years and they had to find new trading routes and organizations and trading operations that uh, will smuggle nutmeg and um, basically in a sense they out, out survived this um, total control by the Dutch. Today there are at least two Bandanese villages that um, carrying the old tradition of, uh, of nutmeg growing and uh, exporting. Botanically nutmeg the tree gives us two distinct spices. One is the nutmeg which is the seed of the fruit and the mace Mace is the um, protective coating of the seed, basically. Nutmeg is native to Indonesia, as we said, Molucas Islands, and grows abundantly and is now naturalized in the West Indies, Sri Lanka, India, Philippines, Tropical America, and the Pacific Islands. It is also grown in small scale in Trinidad, India, Tobago, Zanzibar, and Mauritius. It's an evergreen aromatic tree, usually 10 to 20 meters tall, with spreading branches. The fruit is piriform and yellow in color. The pericarp is fleshy when the fruit matures. It splits in two, exposing the scarlet-colored net like aril, covering the dark brown seed. The principal constituents of nutmeg are fixed oil, the fat, the volatile oil, and starch. The flavor and therapeutic action are due to the volatile oil, whose content varies from 6 to 16%, based on the origin and quality of nutmeg. Nutmeg fat contains eight fatty acids, the most important of them being myristic acid. Nutmeg and mace are used as a stimulant, astrogen, aphrodisiac, and hallucinogen. Oil of nutmeg or mace is employed for flavoring food products and liquors, soaps, tobacco, dental creams, and perfumery products. The fleshy pericarp of the fruit is used for making pickles and jelly. The whole genus of Myristica trees consists of approximately 120 species. A high amount of variability has been reported in growth rate, productivity, size and shape of the leaf, flower size and shape and size of the fruit and nut, and the amount of mace in nutmeg. Crop improvement in nutmeg is confined to selection and multiplication of elite lines. So far, three improved varieties were released in nutmeg. Nutmeg requires a hot and humid climate with no pronounced dry season. It is a shade-loving plant. It can be grown approximately up to 900 meters above sea level. In India, nutmeg is planted as an intercrop in coconut plantations. Fruiting commences from 6 to 9 years depending on the climate and planting materials used. Optimum productivity is attained in approximately 15 years. Fruits are collected periodically from the tree by hand or with hooked sticks or allowed to fall naturally on the ground. All three parts of the fruit, the pericarp, the aril and the seed, so the fruit, the maize and the nutmeg, are separated carefully and sun-dried or are dried by mechanical means. Vanilla and vanilla flavor is the most popular type of spice flavoring so many ingredients in our world today. It's a stunningly complex and subtle spice containing, at a guess, 
somewhere between 250 and 500 different flavor and fragrance components. This fragrance spice is contained in an estimated 18,000 products out there. It's one of the most prized and valuable spices worldwide. The vanilla aromas and flavors we know and love don't reveal themselves until the crop is cured and dried. About 5 to 7 pounds of green vanilla beans are needed to produce 1 pound of processed vanilla. Yet, this is another reason why vanilla is one of the most expensive spices in the world, second only to saffron. Intoxicatingly sweet and floral aroma with creamy notes, vanilla is irresistible to our noses. A vanilla bean could elevate the simplest cake or cookie to a luxurious mouthful. So vanillin and the hundreds of other compounds that make up the secret recipe in nature's disposal inside the vanilla pod makes it an irresistible and attractive smell for all of us. A few years back, I was gifted some Mexican vanilla. It seemed luxurious and expensive, but I was uh, slightly confused. I thought the best vanilla was from Madagascar in the southern Indian Ocean. For some reason, I never heard that term. Actually, vanilla originates from Central America. Today, if you go to Yucatan Peninsula and the surrounding areas, you can see Mayan vendors in brightly colored booths that sell spices and vegetables and fruits of all kinds. These are carrying both native seasonings such as epazote, habanero, achiote, chocolate and vanilla and introduced ones like cinnamon, cloves, cumin and lime juice. Vanilla originated from there. It was transported across and was traded by the Spaniards. Significant role on this trade and uh, spread of uh, the vanilla and chocolate to Europe played the Jews, crypto-Jews and conversers of colonial Spain. So by 1655, the Jews of Jamaica had a monopoly over the shipping of vanilla to Europe and began to recruit other Jews to obtain chocolate or vanilla from elsewhere in the Caribbean and from the northeast coast of South America. In late 1658, two conversers, Joshua Nunes Neto and Joseph Pereira, settled in the Dutch plantation colony of Pomeroon, which is now a part of Guyana. They encouraged settlement there by other crypto-Jews who learned the Arawak dialects for the tribes along the Pomeroon River in order to find out how to extract vanilla from the orchids. One particular Jewish speaker of Arawak mastered the entire traditional extraction process by watching his Arawak workers and then worked with them on innovations that modernized the process to obtain higher yields. The year is 1841. We are on an island then known as Ile de Bourbon, now Reunion. The island lies off the coast of Madagascar, in the southern Indian Ocean. Then, as now, it was a colony of France. Edmond Albius was known to be awfully bright, with a gift for plants and became something of a botanical assistant to Ferréol Payet Beaumont, a botanist. The problem from our perspective? Ferréol owned Albius. He was a 12-year-old enslaved boy who, for all intents and purposes, discovered the solution to the problem that vexed some of the brightest minds in the botanical world. How to pollinate the vanilla plant by hand in order to produce fruit the pods that can be then dried and become our spice vanilla. Beyer Beaumont was one of the many Europeans who had a vanilla vine on his property, a sort of unsolved botanical puzzle that he kept alive but fruitless. Vanilla was introduced to Nocibe, a small island in the north of Madagascar, by planters from Reunion in the 1880s. Since then, its cultivation had spread to the eastern regions of the island, where the climate is similar to that of the region of its origin, Mexico and Central America. 
Vanilla orchids need a tropical climate with a rainfall of about 2,500 millimeters per year and temperatures between 20 and 30 degrees Celsius. So there you go. There you have it. That's why Madagascar is synonymous with vanilla and that's why I was so confused about the Mexican vanilla I got. But what we know and think indeed as vanilla, as I said, is not native to Madagascar. It originated some 10,000 miles away. And it's a notoriously difficult plant to reproduce artificially in plantations and cultivate it. Why do we bother? Obviously, because we love it. Because we love the scent. The vanilla plant flowers only briefly for a few hours. And pollination must occur at that time. Pollination itself is very difficult. That makes one wonder whether the plant has any interest in reproduction at all. It's still not entirely clear how it gets pollinated in the wild. Generally, it is believed that a single type of small, stingless Mexican bee is responsible, and possibly some hummingbirds. But nobody's really been able to figure out how to get vanilla pollinated naturally in any farm-like setting. Deep in the past, vanilla was used by the Totonacs and the Aztecs for ceremonial and scent purposes, and in a couple of beverages as well, most notably and famously chocolate drinks and atole, a drink made from ground corn. And from there ended up in Europe thanks to the Spanish, of course, who brought it back from the New World along with chocolate and chili peppers and tomatoes and all sorts of other kinds of stuff, as we said. So from the Aztecs we know that they first named the fruit Tlilchotchitl, or black flower, because the pod shrivels and turns dark when it's picked. Beans are boiled to halt vegetative growth, beginning the flavor development process. During the curing process, beans are laid out to sweat in the hot tropical sun during the day and wrapped in burlap blankets during the evening. The economic value of vanilla, a tropical vine of Central America, was already firmly understood in the pre-Columbian era of Mesoamerican civilizations, with its pod a recognized form of currency from prehistoric Mexico even. Hernán Cortés, the notorious conquistador, witnessed Aztec rulers demanding vanilla pods as a tax from the Totonacs, who were the primary harvesters of the pods. Guatemala, Belize, Honduras and Costa Rica Wet tropical forests of Central America are where vanilla vines historically ranged along the ancient Mayan city-states. Most of these magnificent forests have been since then logged, fragmented and degraded over the past three centuries, to the extent that wild vanilla orchids are listed as critically endangered. The indigenous peoples of the lands of East Mexico initiated the management and harvesting of vanilla orchids and the diffusion of their dried pods to others as a high-value culinary and medical product. Totonacs brought this orchid out of the rainforests and cured its pods, calling them Xanat. The local trade with Aztecs was facilitated by Pocheca, long-distant traders and merchants who saw the value of mixing vanilla and chocolate for a luxurious after-dinner drink, enjoyed by the Nahuatl-speaking elite of Tenochtitlan. Of course, the name vanilla that we use today is of European origin, and from the Spanish, which refers to the slender pods of the orchid. In 1651, in the Natural History of Herbs of the Mexican Flora, documented by Francisco Hernández, the first announcement of vanilla in the Old World appeared as a black flower orchid. Europeans found many more uses for vanilla, most notably combining it with another colonial product, sugar, from the new sugarcane plantations in the West Indies, to make vanilla desserts that became popular amongst those who could afford them initially, which was really only the very rich and powerful. This is around the time when the first recipes for vanilla ice cream, creme brulee, and other vanilla tinged dishes were created. 
The European colonizers and colonists made many attempts across the tropical colonies in the early 1800s and even in some greenhouses in the comparatively frigid cities of Europe to grow it and reproduce it. Those vines, propagated from clippings, often grew just fine and sometimes even thrived and bloomed, but they hardly ever produced any fruit, which must have been extremely frustrating to the botanists who thought themselves as scientifically minded and basing um, their research to logic and reason, and of course all the vanilla-hungry Europeans. We've heard the story of our slave boy Albius, who made it possible in the mid-19th century. Albius did not receive any of the billions of dollars that his discovery made possible, and though freed in 1848 when slavery was outlawed on the island, his life was brutal and he died in poverty in 1880. By then, though, France had taken Albuis' method and began to produce vanilla and mass in all its tropical holdings. From there, in the late 19th century, scientists figured out how to derive vanillin, the dominant compound that gives vanilla its signature aroma, from less expensive sources. This included eugenol, a chemical compound found in clove oil, and lignin, which is found in plants, wood pulp, and even in cow feces. And today, about 85% of vanillin is synthesized from petrochemicals. This isn't something many of us realize, because labeling is always very evasive and confusing. And you know who was a big fan of vanilla, and uh, in a sense can be considered one of the influential elements for the design for vanilla in North America? Thomas Jefferson. In 1789, he returned from France with his chef, and newly trained in making frozen desserts, and they resolved to keep enjoying them. In Philadelphia... In 1791, he sent to France for 50 vanilla bean pods, which he later wrote are much used in seasoning ice creams. He built a nice house in Monticello in 1802, and at Jefferson's White House that year, Senator Samuel Latham Mitchell recalled eating ice cream in warm pastry, a curious contrast as if the ice had just been taken from the oven. So here's the Thomas Jefferson um, recipe for vanilla ice cream. Two bottles of good cream, six yolks of eggs, half a pound of sugar. Mix the yolks and sugar. Put the cream on fire in a casserole, first putting in a stick of vanilla. When near boiling, take it off. Pour it gently into the mixture of eggs and sugars. Stir it well. Put it on the fire again, stirring it thoroughly with a spoon. When near boiling, take it off and strain it through a towel. Put it in the sabotier, which is the canister within the ice pail, then set it in ice an hour before it is to be served. Put into the ice a handful of salt. Put salt on the cover lid of the sabotier and cover the hole with ice. Leave it still half a quarter of an hour. Turn the sabotier in the ice 10 minutes. Open it from time to time to detach the ice from the sides. Stir it well with a spatula. Put it in the molds, just lay it well down on the knee. Then put the mold into the same bucket of ice. Leave it there until the moment of serving it. And this is the history of three spices that shaped the modern globalization movement. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and um, remember to leave a review or a rating wherever you get your podcast from. The Delicious Legacy Podcast is on Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Acasts, Apple Podcasts and uh, Podbean, Pocketcasts and everywhere else you get your podcast from. So please, please, please leave a rating and share it with friends and family and spread the word out there for the best archaeogastronomical podcast in the world. Thanks for listening. 
Remember, I'm also on Patreon and um, you can help from $3 a month to support the podcast and um, give me a chance to create more interesting episodes, research different topics and find out the latest developments in archaeogastronomy. I've been Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. See you soon for another adventure in the history of food.